It's so good to hear God's word this morning together, isn't it? Uh, let's, let's uh, again, just practice uh, for a moment. What is the story of the Bible in four words? Can somebody share the story of the Bible with me in four different words? I know Ryan's got it. I'm going to call on somebody else this week. My man, keep working hard. Good job, good job. Somebody, four words. I see Kyle starting it over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> That's it, brother. That's it. The story of the Bible in four words. Creation. God created the world. He created everything that is within it. He created man and woman in his image. He created the earth by forming it and filling it. Uh, then we see fall, right? Mankind, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, and this led to a separation. It led to the existence of, of sin in the human nature and then, therefore, now there's a separation that exists between God and man. There's some sort of need for us to have redemption. How can we be redeemed and in relationship and community uh, with the Lord again? And we, we find that that redemption ultimately comes in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who was born uh, in the flesh, and he came and he lived and he dwelt among the people. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross in our place for our sin. He was buried, and three days later, he resurrected. He rose from the grave. And God, uh, through this work, has saved his people. And if we would believe in the work of Jesus and repent of our sin, we can now be in a relationship with God, and we can have redemption. We can have community. We can be rescued. But ultimately, we find that the last piece of the story is that God is going to restore creation to its intended order. And we find this, especially from Philippians 2, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the story of the Bible in four words. How about the story of the gospel in four words? Can somebody share the gospel? Yes, Sydney. Amen, amen. Good job. God, man, Jesus response. So as we look at this story, right, we can only be rescued, we can only be redeemed by God if we recognize what God has done. So who is God? As we think through God, man, Jesus response, we want to tell people about God, what he's like, what he has done. We want to tell them about his character. We want to tell people about mankind. We want to talk specifically about sin. We don't want to diminish uh, the, the sin that exists in humanity, right? We don't want to just say, well, we're broken, we're we're, uh, we're not perfect. We want to say that there's something that separates us from God eternally and that we need a rescue that comes in Jesus in his work on the cross and then ultimately the response. How do, we, how do we tell people about this good news that Jesus has come in our place, died on the cross, resurrected from the grave? What do people do with this now? They repent, they turn from their sin, and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's, let's just say the gospel together, okay? So God, God, man, Jesus, response. Praise the Lord. Amen. So as we come through the book of Genesis, as we have started to look through the series, we have been laying a foundation for the entirety of the Bible. That's why every week we repeat those two different stories. We're repeating the story of the Bible through creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're giving people a framework to see the story, the narrative of the Bible, and see how it develops. And we're also giving them the heartbeat of that story, the climax, 
and the story of the gospel so that we can continue to again and again as we enter into God's word, see his purposes and how he has written to us. So through Genesis 1, we've, we've seen that God's created the world. Now we're, we're here in Genesis chapter 9. And last week, we just saw that God established a covenant with Noah that he was faithful to save Noah from the flood in a world that was full of sin and such corruption that God had to intervene for his people and for ultimately for creation. So Noah is seen like a second Adam, right? We've seen that in, in the covenant that God would bring about the restoration of creation, the redemption of creation from this flood. But our passage this morning, uh, from Genesis 9 through 10 into chapter 11, continues the flow of the narrative. And, and so there are just a, a few points that I want to point out to us this morning. As we look through the narrative, uh, I want to just point out three different things. From Genesis 9, we can learn this. Sin wrecks the saints. Sin wrecks the saints. So if you're taking notes, you want to write these things down. The first thing we're going to learn from Genesis chapter 9 is sin wrecks the saints. Second, we're going to see that God faithfully establishes his people. God faithfully establishes his people. And then third, God continually intervenes with mercy. God continually intervenes with mercy. So let's look here at our first point this morning. Sin wrecks the saints. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. So we we arrived at a scene. James read this passage for us, and we see that we are now talking post-flood. We're back into the created order. It's Noah and his family. And they've been given this task to fill the the earth and to to multiply and, and continue to have dominion over God's creation. So God has established his second Adam through the person of Noah, and we find out that Noah has three different sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we're given this little contextual note that Ham was the father of Canaan, which we will see is important in the development throughout the text. Uh, But what we find out is Noah and his three sons, as they were sent from the, the ark, they were dispersed throughout the entire earth. This is verse 19. And then in verse 20, we find that Noah is working the soil. This is, again, the author of Genesis pointing back to the connection between Adam and Noah. Adam was a worker of the ground. Cain and Abel, workers of the ground, but they rebelled against God, and and Abel ends up dead, and, and Cain is then dispersed from the earth. And so we see God give Noah this creation mandate to rule over creation, to fill the earth, and he's working the land. He's continuing this line of promise that we see from Genesis 3, that there would be one who would come from the line of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and provide for God's people. But we see all of a sudden there's some sort of conflict that rises to the surface. So Noah, as he's working the soil, he plants a vineyard. In verse 21, it tells us that he drank of the wine and he became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. So again, let's let's think back to the early chapters of Genesis, Adam is given a task by God to go and have dominion on the earth with his wife to multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it, to hold it. And and now God gives Noah this same calling and he tells him to fill the earth, to continue to have dominion over its purposes and to work the land. So Noah plants a vineyard. 
Um, there's nothing wrong with vineyards. It's a work of the land. It's a, it's a thing that God has established. He has created uh, this, this purpose. He has made uh, grapes so that they could enjoy the fruit of grapes. And so verse 21 tells us that he does enjoy the fruit of his labor. God has created us so that we would enjoy the fruit of our labor. But there tells, there's, lies the problem. He became drunk from his labor. He drank the wine and he became overcome with it. And so a textual note here is the Bible does not condemn alcohol. The Bible condemns drunkenness. As we see later on in the chapters of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications of leaders, the qualifications of elders in the church, it says that he should not be a drunkard. Other times through stories in the scripture, we see again and again that drunkenness leads to rebellion and leads to uh, rebellion against God. So it's not the, the alcohol that's condemned, it's the drunkenness, it's the effect, the freedom of man that leads to the condemnation. So we need to see here that the plant, the vineyard, is not the root cause of this person's rebellion. This person is the root cause of their own rebellion. Noah had choices. He had the opportunity, he had the freedom to walk in responsibility, and he did not walk in responsibility. He was overcome by his own vineyard. Interesting enough, it tells us that as he becomes drunk, he lays uncovered in a tent. He's naked. Right? Do you see a little pattern developing through the book of Genesis here? Adam and Eve are sent by God to have dominion, to fill the earth, to form the earth, to multiply, to have dominion. They work the ground. They rebel against God. They see that they're naked, and God calls them out and says, Adam, where are you? Mankind, where are you? Come and be with me. Be in community. And they're ashamed. In Noah, Noah has been given this task to fill the earth, to multiply, to have dominion, to work the ground. He works the ground. He falls in sin, becomes drunk, and lays uncovered in the tent. So the, the rebellion of Adam comes as he's in the middle of the garden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He eats of the fruit. His eyes are opened. He recognizes that he and Eve are naked, and they run, and they hide from God. Noah eats of the fruit of the vineyard, is naked in the middle of his tent. And then we see Ham enter the scene in verse 22. So Noah's already been wrecked by his sin. But Ham continues in this disobedience. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. This is a, a verse that we can very easily read over. But recognize what it says here, that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and he told his brothers. Ham's rebellion toward God and his rebellion toward his father is that he sees him uncovered, and rather than dealing with the situation, rather than taking responsibility, he goes to his brothers and says, hey, Shem Japheth, dad's naked in the middle of the tent. I'm not doing anything about this. I'm going to run. Adam, in his rebellion, is exposed to see the knowledge of good and evil and runs from God. Sin continually makes people run from God. This is the pattern that we need to see, a pattern that develops throughout all of history. Sin does not 
run people toward God, it runs them away from God. Again and again, we have to see the power of sin in the life of a human continues to enable them to not run to the Lord, but to run away from the Lord. So if we don't deal with sin, it's not that it just disappears. It actually enables us to start walking and then jogging and then sprinting from the Lord. This is why I think John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Because his power is so invasive. It's so overcoming. It's so powerful in us that it affects even our nature. So our nature does not say, hey, let's run to the Lord. It says, let's run away from this. Let's run away from our responsibility. Let's run away from our action. But Shem and Japheth, praise the Lord, acted with responsibility. They see that they hear this news, so they, they decide that they're going to take a garment, they lay it on their shoulders, and this is, this is just brilliant, right? They, this, they don't expose themselves to their father's nakedness. They, they have this blanket, essentially. They're walking side by side, and they back up into the center of the tent, and they drop the blanket, and they run. <laughs> I was, like, visualizing this uh, during the week, and I was like, wow, that was, that was smart. That was a good way to do it. Uh, and nonetheless it leads to Noah awaking from his drunkenness in recognizing that something had happened. So Noah rebels against God in drunkenness. Ham rebels against God by not taking responsibility to oversee and to see his father and to see his good. The, good, the Ten Commandments tell us to honor our father and mother. He rebels against the Lord. And then we see Noah respond to what has been done. And he says, in verse 25, Cursed be Cain and a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So God, through Noah, Noah responds to what has just happened by cursing Ham and blessing Shem and Japheth. Shem and Japheth acted responsibly. They addressed the sinful issue, and they covered it. And they gave it over. They honored their father, whereas Ham ran from him. And Noah has his own rebellion to deal with to God, right? This is an important reminder for us. Hey, there's no super Christian, right? There's no uh, Christian that is an elitist above anybody else. We are all capable of falling into sin, Sin can absolutely wreck us. Noah is not just like totally taken off of his responsibility here. He still has to deal with the Lord, and the Lord ultimately deals with him in his death. And Ham and Shem and Japheth, they're given a curse and a blessing from God. And what we find here is that Ham is going to be the father of nations that rebel against the Lord. This small act of seeing his father naked and not responding led ultimately to such an act of rebellion that we see nations rise up against the Lord. They all have their lineage from the person of Ham. And Shem and Japheth are given this blessing by the Lord. Continue on. So in chapter 10, we find out, 10.1, these are the generations of the sons of of Noah, Shem, and Japheth, sons that were born after the flood. 
We've already discussed this a little bit, but the genealogies of the Bible are meant to remind us of God's faithfulness to his promises. So in Genesis chapter 5, we saw after Cain and Abel's rebellion, God promised uh, through Seth, who Adam and Eve bore their son, right, their son Seth after the death of Abel, that Seth's line would continue God's promise through Adam to bring somebody who would crush the head of the serpent. Now here in, in Genesis 10, we find actually in what happens in verse or in chapter 9, uh, verse 19, from these three sons of Noah and from the people were, or from them were the people of the whole earth. So from these three sons, the earth is spread. This is the filling of the earth again. So God is going to be faithful to his promises. So if you're coming to Genesis 10 and you're like, why did James have to read all of those names? Here's the purpose behind that, friends. To show that God is faithful to his promise. His promise was chapter 9, verse 19, that he would fill the earth and bring the nations of the people through these three sons. And so what we see is an inclusio. This is a, uh, a literary structure where we see uh, that the first son, Japheth, is named. And then we see uh, in between Japheth and Shem, Ham. So there's, uh, the author is pointing us to the structure that exists to see, hey, here's God's faithfulness to his promise. Here's the rebellious son of Ham. And then here is his faithfulness again to continue with his people. So we're first reminded that sin wrecks the saints. Sin totally destroys the testimony of those that walk with the Lord. But there can be redemption and forgiveness. And so we need to recognize that. But that redemption and forgiveness comes through God's promise. God brings us through. He establishes His people. He's faithful to continue this work. And so we find... In Japheth, we find Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan, and their sons continue on. And then we see, notice this 10.6, the sons of Ham. Who were they? Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. If we read further in the Bible, as we continue to see, especially the next book of the Bible, in Exodus, the people of God have been brought into slavery into what nation? Egypt. And so we see God here working and being faithful to his word. It was through Ham's rebellion that the fathers of Canaan came. And these nations were established that would run away from the Lord. We continue to see in Genesis 10.8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. This is going to develop into more of a story of rebellion, what we'll see in the next chapter. But it's interesting that from Cush's line, who fathered Nimrod, we find the development of the city that is called Nineveh. And so those of you that have been involved in our D groups have been studying through the book of Jonah. And as we've studied through the book of Jonah, we found that God had called a prophet who had been faithful 
to establish his word, to proclaim the gospel, to establish borders for the people of God so that they would be protected, they would be guarded. And then Jonah is sent by the Lord to the city of Nineveh, who is a rebellious people, and the Lord says, I will save them. You need to go and proclaim the news, and I will turn this city around, and they will trust in me. And Jonah responds by saying, no. He doesn't want to. He runs from the Lord. In fact, he runs from basically Connecticut to California, geographically. He's like, if I go from here to here, maybe God won't find me, right? This is like what my brother Phil said, right? You can't just hide in the bushes from God. You can't jump in and say, maybe he won't find me. He created the world. He will find you, my friend. Your sin will be found out. And so Jonah runs from the Lord. As he runs away from the Lord, he's sent onto this boat. He's spit out of this boat after there's this giant uh, storm that comes. And the people find out, hey, we're facing this attack because this guy's rebelling against God's calling in his life. And he goes into the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And then the Lord, he cries out to the Lord. The Lord delivers him in his faithfulness, and he sends him to Nineveh. And Jonah actually goes. And here's what happens. As he goes, he proclaims the gospel, and the people of Nineveh turn from their rebellion and trust in the Lord, and they find redemption. It's a massive revival. A huge city, the greatest city that would be known in the world at this time, now sees the salvation of the Lord. What an amazing testimony. You know how Jonah responded? Like a cranky old man, right? (laughs) He said, I don't want to do this. Lord, how could you do this? This is horrible. These were the people that attacked your people. I set up the borders. And the Lord is celebrating and saying, don't I have right over this city? Don't I have right over these people to rescue them? Or to do as I please? Am I not the Lord? And Jonah's response is basically, meh. No, it'd be better for me to die. I don't really actually want to see this. And we all chuckle, but it's us. It's us. The Lord does a mighty work of salvation, and we then look at it and say, darn those Red Sox fans. Darn those Yankee fans. They can't be redeemed. Well, if the Lord can use somebody like Jonah to save a rebellious city in Nineveh that points back to Ham, who was connected to Noah, who saw the flood of the world in such corruption. If God could save the world from a flood because of corruption, if God could establish for himself a people through this line of his sons, if God could send somebody like Jonah, if God could establish his people, why wouldn't he use them? He would absolutely use them. But we have to see, what's the big part of this story? Is the power in the people? No, friends. Is the power in their greatness? No, friends. The power is from the Lord. Because he's faithful to his word. We have a God who is faithful to his word. He faithfully creates his people. He lets them walk in their freedom, which, by the way, we celebrate freedom as Americans, don't we? 
All we have to do is open the Bible and see where that freedom leads us again and again and again. We can freely come to worship the Lord and find great life and purpose, but very quickly can our freedom lead us to sin and can it lead us to a wreckage and away from the Lord in rebellion. Just as quickly as we can run to the Lord, we can run away from Him. I don't know if any of you follow soccer, but there's an American soccer player. His name's Christian Pulisic. He's a great player right now. He plays for Chelsea in the Premier League. Poor guy. <laughs> I know a few Chelsea fans. and Yeah, anyway, I won't get too rebellious here. <laughs> Nonetheless, I was reading an article this morning. Soccer is my favorite sport. Coach it, follow it, play it. Um, and one thing that just happened, Christian just scored a hat trick two games ago. It was his first, he scored his first goal. It was amazing. He scored a right-footed shot, a left-footed shot, and a header. It's what soccer players call the perfect hat trick. And his header was amazing. The corner came in from, uh, a ball came in through the air. He doesn't even look at it. It goes off the back of his head and in. Man, I wish I could score goals like that. <laughs> Didn't even have to work. He scores this hat trick, and then there's all this hype that's built up. They're like, here he is, $73 million American that has come into Chelsea. He's going to be the next big thing. Uh, he's going to be amazing. The next game he scores, and everybody's celebrating him. Everybody's hyping him up. And then this one guy writes an article, and he says, Christian Pulisic is one bad game away from the bench. And it's so true. In the game of soccer, you can go from a hero to a villain in a, in a minute. But in life, we can also go from heroes to villains in a minute. Sin is pervasive. It's influential. And the moment that we don't think that it has any sort of grip on humanity is a moment that we are so enabled and so powerless to its grip. So we need to continually see that God is faithful and continually run to him in his word to find our trust and our hope. And to know the good news is, friends, that God holds his people. He is holding his people, he's holding his creation, and he is faithful to establish it. I think in the Psalms it says, if if the Lord builds his house, there's great work. But if if the Lord does not build his house, the laborer labors in vain. I, I think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If we rely on the Lord to establish his people, if we rely on him to be faithful to his word, he will come through. Friends, we live in a chaotic world and we can see corruption around us, but we know the end of the scripture. We know who wins. We know that Jesus is coming and that there will be restoration. So fear not, Christian, because your, your hope is not in your work, it's in the word of your God and King. Find your hope in God's word and his faithfulness and know that he does establish his people. Hopefully, as you come again to genealogies, you're encouraged. Encouraged because you get to hear about God's faithfulness through the generations that at the foundation of the world, through its continuance, God has built his people. And no one can stop the Lord. And then we arrive into Genesis chapter 11. So we find out that sin wrecks humans, right? Sin can wreck the saints. We know that God is faithful to 
establishes people, but we also see that God is continuing to intervene with mercy. So Genesis 11, we find out in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is pretty, pretty clever. It's pretty amazing to see what happens here. We should be reminded of what happened from in Genesis, Genesis 3. How did Satan deceive Eve? Did God really say that? Surely if you do that, you won't die. A little bit of deception comes in and throws Eve into total rebellion. And then what do we see in Genesis 4? Cain and Abel worshiping the Lord, bringing gifts to the Lord. Cain just kind of comes half-heartedly to the Lord, and Abel brings his best to the Lord. He, He offers to him true worship. And Cain builds up in jealousy. And is overcome by his jealousy and murders his brother. And then Genesis 6, we see that humanity is so evil and full of corruption that their thoughts are evil, that they build up in this evil. The Lord brings a flood. Noah falls in rebellion. And just a couple of chapters later, friends, we find the earth again in a state of rebellion. There's one language. The people are spreading. They're establishing this city in the land of Shinar. And they say, let's make a tower for ourselves and let's make our our prowess known and our, our power known throughout the entire earth. Let's build this. Let's do it now, lest we be dispersed. I think, as I, as I read through these first six verses, I'm reminded of what God had done to Cain in his rebellion. Cain was near to the Lord, then sent away from the Lord. I think of Adam. He was near to the Lord, and then sin led him away from the Lord. And I think of people here, they have the opportunity to be near to the Lord. The Lord has reestablished the world. He sent a faithful witness. But they say, look at our power and our might. And they're pushed away from the Lord. But look at how God intervenes. In verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. This is pretty amazing. God has created humans with some really impressive qualities and characteristics. You know, all of us, it's kind of become a cliche. We always tell kids, you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do if you set your mind to it. How many of you have heard that, right? Listen, I keep trying to put this into my soccer players. I'm like, if you actually run, you can play well. It's not working. I have to bribe them with Hot Pockets. We all know how that's going, by the way. (laughs) But 
We tell people all the time, you can be what you want to be, you can do what you want to do, and there's, there's some truth to this, and the, the half-truth is that God has created humans not just to be figures on the earth, but to be the supreme authority on the earth. Adam was given the task of having dominion. Noah, given the task of having dominion. God has established his image in people, and he wants his people to reflect his character and his goodness. So these people are reflecting that God is a creator. They're building a tower. They're reflecting part of the image of God, but the the image is distorted through rebellion. They're not doing it for God's glory. They're doing it for their own glory. And so the Lord, in his power and in his might, who spoke creation into existence and can wipe it out in a word, decides rather than wiping out humanity again, he will be faithful to his covenant that he just established in Genesis 9. So he intervenes. Behold, they are one people and have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they're capable of doing. In verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. This is amazing. If you've ever like been in a situation where you've played somebody, like let's say it's a game, right? Have you ever played chess with somebody who's really good at chess? They can beat you in like three or four moves, right? You just start moving this. Uh, Nate and I were playing checkers at uh, at the the corn maze, right? He was so gracious to me. He could have beaten me in like three or four moves, and he's like, "Aha, I've got this." <laughs> these are these moments. Like I've played racquetball before, right? I always end up playing racquetball with older guys. And you know what? They wipe me off the floor every time. Because I'm thinking youthfulness and power, here we go, right? And they're like, ooh, technique and knowing where to hit the ball, right? They hit it in that one spot, and it spins, and it rolls across the floor, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? They can just stand there. They're having fun all day. They know their shot, and they love watching you run around and work up a sweat. And God, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite power, in his mercy, sees his people rebelling against them, and he goes, tweak. They have one language. I know how to fix this problem. Let's confuse their tongues. Right? Now, have you ever tried to talk to somebody who doesn't know your language? Okay, so Irish people speak English, but you'll have to ask Rachel, because I don't think she's convinced of that. (laughs) Visiting my family in Northern Ireland, I was a translator of our own language for her. <laughs> it is a different tongue. Uh, or there is actually an Irish language, which I know very little of. Um, but it is difficult to communicate, difficult to complete a task when we don't know how to speak to one another. And so the Lord, in his infinite wisdom and power, says, all right, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to confuse their languages. And it causes confusion. And the Lord disperses them from where they were all over the face of the earth. And then in verse 9, therefore its name, the name of the city was called Babel because the Lord confused their language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Sin wrecks the saints. All of us are one minute away from falling into rebellion. But the Lord faithfully establishes his people. So we have the opportunity to respond to God's goodness by 
coming to him, confessing our sin, and seeing his mercy. And the Lord, even when we have those chaotic moments, and we run in our rebellion and think, look at our, our power, look at our might, he is so merciful to come in and just humble us enough to remind us that he is king. Church, here's how we respond. As the people of God, we are not building a city in Shinar. We are not reestablishing the earth, but we've been sent to proclaim the goodness of our king. So we, the church, can proclaim the gospel. We, the church, need to recognize the power of sin. And so as we go to a broken world, as we go outside the doors today, do not expect sinners to be saints. Expect sinners to be sinners. And speak the gospel. Even if you feel like you're running again and again into a brick wall, know that the power comes from God to bring his word to his people and to change their lives. So we don't stop our faithfulness to proclaim because we're waiting for it to hit. We're trusting the Lord to work hearts and minds and to bring his people to salvation. So faithfully proclaim. Play your part in proclaiming the gospel. As the church, we can confess sin. I just sent out an article through our email this week and through our Facebook page. Uh, We just celebrated the Reformation. All right? Everybody celebrates Halloween. Man, I celebrate Reformation Day. Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And from that moment, God in his goodness brought about a, a movement where the church was founded on the word alone. They recognized salvation comes by faith alone, trusting that God has saved us through his son Jesus. It's a gift of grace. It's not a gift of our works. And ultimately... If we stand upon his word, recognizing by faith that his son has been gracious to us, we'll see the glory of God in our salvation. So we can celebrate as the people that the Lord was starting a work there. That we're built on the authority of the word so we can run to his word as his people. We can confess sin. I I sent out an article that was entitled, A Grace Alone Church, in ten ways that grace alone affects the church. And one of those ways is through the confession of sin. This morning, we have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to confess our sins to the Lord. And if there's reconciliation, if there's rebellion, if there's brokenness in our relationships as the people of God, as the family of God, we get to come together as brothers and sisters and friends, united in the Lord Jesus as his people, and say, brother, sister, I've wronged you, but I come to you knowing that in the gospel, there's forgiveness. And so I'm sorry for being a stupid fool. I'm sorry for being angry. I'm sorry for not having the, the conversations that we've needed to have. I'm sorry that, that I fall short, but would you please enact and walk out in the gospel and forgiveness? Can we start again in the Lord? We can experience that this morning as the church. We get to experience it as we sing together, as the word is proclaimed. From the pulpit, we we are uniting by grace. It is God's grace that has brought us here in this moment for forgiveness, for faithfulness, and for life.
So let's be a people of the word this week. Let's run from sin. Let's run to the Lord. Let's confess quickly. And let's see God intervene in his mercy and in his goodness. Amen? Pray with me. Father, would you continue to remind us that we are one moment away from falling into rebellion. And God, may we very quickly be reminded not only of the, the opportunity to fall into rebellion, but the opportunity to turn around and praise you. So as your people, we pause for a moment and we just give you thanks. Thank you, God, for being faithful. Thank you for establishing your people and your word. God, would you be with us as we take the Lord's Supper this morning? May we celebrate forgiveness and mercy and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for, from the beginning you had a plan, and you have continued to walk out your faithfulness to your promises, and you are continuing to save. And so use us to proclaim the truth that you have given us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm going to invite the elders to come forward as we take the Lord's